Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their creative journeys. I'm CJ, and we're delighted to be joined today by the great S.T. Joshi. S.T. Joshi is an American writer, musician, critic, and award-winning scholar whose work has, has covered much weird and fantastic fiction, especially H.P. Lovecraft, Ambrose Bierce, Lord Dunsany, and many associated writers. He has also expanded into areas such as atheism, weird poetry, race relations, and political discussion. Amid many books, as in hundreds, he also wrote an autobiography, What Is Anything? Um, sorry, What Is Anything? Memoirs of a Life in Lovecraft, which I greatly enjoyed reading. ST, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your time, sir. Now, we were just discussing, I, I am in Wellington, New Zealand, and you are in Washington State. And we are about 100 degrees Fahrenheit apart right now because we are having a, whole, a, a holy terror of a polar blast and you are in the middle of the most unseasonal hot period that has ever hit Washington, I think? Uh, pretty much, at least to this extent. Um, uh, we, you know, in, in the U.S., we still use Fahrenheit. So uh, we ex over the last two days, we experienced temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And in this part of the United States, the upper uh, Pacific Northwest, we rarely get temperatures even above 80 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So you can imagine what uh, what it was like here, because no one has air conditioning because you usually don't need it. Uh, maybe two or three days of the year you might want it, but this was unprecedented. And, and my, my wife and I had to retreat to a, an air-conditioned hotel for the last two nights. We just couldn't stand <laughs> it in our own house. I, I wish we could have taken um, our cats with us. Our poor cats were suffering very badly. Ah, uh, but... But you're back now, as I can see, because I, I, I think you're in your study or, or I'm, I'm at home now. I'm, house? Well, luckily, I have a basement, which is cool, quite cool. <laughs> uh, so it's 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 tolerable. In fact, even during the, those hot days, I came back here to do, do work in my basement. But we, we simply could not go to the main floor. It was it was unbearable. <laughs> oh, and that's amazing. For yes, for us here in New Zealand, New Zealand is mostly pretty temperate, especially the North Island. But every once in a while, Antarctica decides to say hello. And you get about a day's warning, and then there's this polar blast, and there's vast waves hitting the south coast, and 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 it feels a lot more primordial. So we've just had that. So I'm I'm happily ensconced. We have the heater on. We are not leaving the house today, as far as I'm concerned. So this is like like a really good time for a good um, chat, which which has worked out well. Um, now I I have been. Um, around and exposed to your work for a very long time, initially through your work on H.P. Lovecraft and then exploring the various other avenues. I, I had never read your autobiography, which I, I just finished last week. And I got a wonderful sense of literally a, a, a creative journey through all of these wonderful intellectual geographies. And this idea of these territories that you seemed to um, find and explore and really grow in. I, um, why did you choose to write the autobiography in the first place? Because it's a really interesting time to put it down. Um, well, a number of reasons. Uh, the title, I should say, is actually stolen from Lovecraft. He, he himself <laughs> wanted to write a book of philosophy called What Is Anything?, uh, we can get into Lovecraft's philosophy later, but certainly he was an atheist and a materialist. And uh, uh, but he had an incredible sense of, of you know, philosophical inquiry, uh, which you lot you may not be aware of unless you read his letters, uh, thousands and thousands of those letters, which I've been editing for the last twenty years or so. 
Um, so I, I stole that title, even though it really doesn't have... I, I'm not even sure what it means, but that's okay. Um, anyway, uh, so but my subtitle relates to the fact that Lovecraft really has been a key to my exploration of so many other things well outside the range of literature. I mean, certainly he has led me back to the great classic writers, beginning with Poe and Arthur Mackin and Lord Dunsany and Algernon Blackwood, etc., and forward to people like Ramsey Campbell, Ted Klein, whom I'm fortunate enough to know, I actually know Campbell as well, uh, Thomas Ligotti, uh, and other writers of, of today. Um, but he has also led me into philosophy, into atheism, into into political inquiry, uh, even into things like a study of of the architecture of colonial America, which I find fascinating. You know, especially to the to, uh, on the East Coast, where this is the one sort of uh, historically rich part of the uh, American continent, really speaking. Um, so he really has led me in all these different directions, and and I wrote this book almost as a, out of a sense of gratitude to Lovecraft for what he has done for me. That's fantastic, and and. And that sense that someone could have so much output and so much implication in their work that you could spend years and decades following those trails and then blazing your own trails beyond that. There's, there's, a, a, there's such a vast possibility in Lovecraft's output that I find absolutely fascinating. Well, and, and nobody knew it. I, I certainly didn't know it when I was getting into it. Uh, I, I read Lovecraft, as, as my book says. I read Lovecraft as a teenager. A lot of people do. Age of 13, 14, I can't quite remember. Obviously, enjoyed the stories. In fact, they had a tremendous impact upon me. Not only uh, their conceptions, which was nothing like what I had read before. I mean, I had started reading some horror fiction before that, but he, he just blew me out of the water in terms of just his ideas. And and then I, I got really into his prose. I thought his prose is magnificent. To this day, I think Lovecraft is one of the great masters of English prose. Uh, he gets criticized for his prose by people who don't really understand what he was trying to do. Uh, but if you study the history of English prose, he is working in a very clear tradition of, of um, well, I don't know what you want to call it exactly, flamboyant prose, somewhat somewhat richly textured prose, like Poe, like like Thomas De Quincey, and so many others. And he did it masterfully. But, I, I'm sorry, but I wanted to, you know, so I got into the stories, certainly as a teenager, uh, but then I discovered very soon thereafter that there was a lot more to him than just a, a, a writer of stories. And that's when I discovered his letters, his essays, his poetry, and, and I went on from there. That's wonderful. I... I was really interested by the part in your in your book when you're at Brown University and you've had options of other colleges to go to, but you you really go to Brown because that is the closest place to Lovecraft. So you've chosen this location. And by the way, I think you've probably had this before, but there's there's an, an incredible work ethic already starting to develop in your teens there, which which is quite terrifying. But at some point it seems to me and and I may be reading this differently. Sometime in the 1970s, you kind of realize there's this there's this place of being the Lovecraft guy, and no one has fully occupied it. And at some point, you make a decision that you are going to be the Lovecraft guy. Well, uh, I mean, I I started. I mean, okay, it's. It... I am not exactly the most outgoing person in the world. At least I certainly wasn't when I was uh, younger. I was very shy. I didn't really like meeting people. Um, you know, I, of course, I had friends. I always did. But, uh, you know, not a lot of them. I was not gregarious. So I, I turned to books. Um, you know, books are great friends because they, they can really guide you through a lot of uh, a lot of difficulties, uh, you know, as a teenager particularly. Um, 
and somehow I latched on to horror fiction. I, I never really was interested in science fiction, maybe because I, even to this day, I don't really like contemplating the future. I don't think the future is a good place, quite frankly. I, I, my orientation is toward the past. Uh, as Lovecraft once said in a, in a memorable statement, the past is real. It is all there is. Um, it's a fascinating utterance. But anyway, uh, so it, it, I enjoyed Lovecraft partially because he lived in the past. Uh, and and he you know was a, was a real uh, uh, student of his own time and and of the time uh, preceding him, um, but so much of my life has been fortuitous. <laughs> if I weren't an atheist, as I said in my book, if I weren't an atheist, I'd almost believe that somebody was looking out for me, <laughs> because I just for, literally fortuitously have made right decisions that have led me to to where I am. In the early 1970s, my interest in Lovecraft led me to approach other people in the field. Uh, uh, I don't even know how, how that started, but uh, it just started. I got in touch with a couple of other people who were doing this sort of work, you know, around the, around the United States. Lovecraft, remember, he was starting to get popular with the paperback editions of the 1970s, but still extremely, quite obscure as far as a literary figure is concerned. I mean, nobody in the uh, university uh, environment really took much notice of him. They thought he was just a pulp writer writing, you know, popular fiction for the masses. Um, but I sensed, no, this is, that's not right. I, we, there's more to Lovecraft, way more to Lovecraft than that. Um, and again, just so happened that right at that time was when a small band of individuals, mostly not academicians, uh, we're starting to explore Lovecraft at, in much greater depth and, and detail uh, than had been done in the past. And I got in touch with these people, and I certainly didn't think I was, you know, uh, one of the leading guys at the time. Uh, in fact, my great mentor for several years was a professor in Georgia, Dirk Mozig, uh, and I'll tell you, I could not have done a fraction of what I, I have done without his initial guidance. I mean, I, I took I, I took the baton from him, I suppose, but uh, he really guided me to, to the study of Lovecraft. And I don't know if it was him or whether it was the Camp's biography, which came out in 1975, that, that said, you know, that led me to Brown University. Uh, but I said, I have to go there. Nobody can do serious work on Lovecraft unless you go to Brown University and, and study the immense incalculably immense archives uh, of Lovecraft that they have there. Books, papers, manuscripts. You can't even begin to, you know, to, to, to describe how much there is. And it's not only a matter of just spending a few weeks there. You have to spend years there. And luckily, I did get into Brown. Uh, I turned down Yale. Uh, didn't want, want to go to Yale. Uh, Harvard put me on their waiting list. I said, sorry, Harvard. I don't want to go there anyway. Uh, went to Brown. Six years, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and I soaked up Lovecraft while also getting a, 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 a premier education uh, as well. I was going to ask you about that. I, I, I also did classics. Um, and at some point you're with classics, you're either going to go all the way, you're going to dive very deep into Greek, especially, and you're going to really have your entire mind occupied by that, or you're not. And I've known people who've kind of gone both ways and, and, my understanding from the book is at some point beyond this, having done an, an enormous amount of work already on Lovecraft, but also pursuing the classics, you're at Princeton and and the upshot really is that you realize that you're not going to live in the academy. That's right. And and again, here's another instance where, where something fortuitous happened. I actually wanted to pursue a PhD at Brown and because and, I was very comfortable there. I, I liked my professors. Um, 
you know, obviously I loved being in Providence, Rhode Island, the city where Lovecraft himself grew up and spent most of his life. I mean, it, it is a wonderful city, really it is. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's again, uh, for the person who's interested in Lovecraft, you have to go there and understand the atmosphere of that city to get an understanding of Lovecraft himself. But uh, I got a master's at Brown, but they said, you know, we don't have anybody here in our department doing classical philosophy, which is where I was heading toward. I was studying uh, Epicurus, Lucretius, uh, the Stoic philosophers. Nobody at Brown in my classics department had that specialty. So I said, okay, well, where, where, where can I go? I can go to Yale again. I applied to Yale, got in again, and turned them down again. <laughs> I don't think Yale likes me very much, but uh, not that they care anymore. Um, uh, or I could go to Princeton. That really, Those really the two options. Uh, there was a fine number of professors at Princeton, but one in particular whom I thought I would do a lot of good work with. Well, I went there, spent two years there, uh, and realized, first of all, that I didn't really like Princeton for a variety of reasons. Nothing wrong with Princeton, it's a great institution, but the department somehow really wasn't suited to me. But more specifically, in those two years, I said, you know, I'm really not suited for this kind of work, uh, especially, as you just said, it is simply impossible for to do high-level classical research and the kind of research I was doing on Lovecraft and other writers. I mean, there's just not enough time in the day. Uh, especially, you know, in, as a graduate student, you have to work on a PhD, you have to do teaching, you have to do all this other stuff. My productivity in, in the Lovecraft realm during those couple of years was reduced to nil, uh, practically. And I said, no, I, I don't. Uh, Lovecraft just meant more to me. I love the classics. I love reading Latin and Greek. I can still read them today. Well, Greek is kind of fading now. <laughs> if you don't keep up Greek, <laughs> it'll go. But ironically enough, uh, the, the, the Latin and Greek and, and ancient philosophy that I studied more than 30 years ago has now suddenly come back <laughs> to use in my in my uh, work on, on atheism, and we'll, we'll go into that later. But uh, in 1984, I said, this is it. I, I, I have to make a break, or at least take a, take a break. I, I got a leave of absence from Princeton, um, and, and I, I found a job in publishing that I hoped, in, in New York City, that I hoped would allow me to do my Lovecraft work on the side, and sure enough, it did. Uh, I mean, if I had failed, you know, if I had not succeeded at my my uh, that occupation uh, at uh, at the small publishing house that I was uh, at, I would have gone back to Princeton and finished the PhD. But luckily enough, I I prospered at this uh, company and spent the next eleven years there and did a lot of Lovecraft work on the side. That's wonderful and. This is some of the stuff that really interests me around the overall journey. Um, we talk to a lot of people in a lot of creative fields and one way or another, most people who are doing something interesting, who, who are striking out a, a, a path, there's this weird combination of, in their gut, my experience has been, people often kind of know what they really want, but real life and their mind and all of everything else keeps on trying to confound that and people often go through a sort of tangle early or mid career where there's a lot of distractions and a lot of options and a lot of possibilities and somewhere in there people find this sense of direction emerging out of a bit of chaos and I think you talk in your in your autobiography near the end you talk about how you've kind of ended up doing all the things you ever wanted to do you're exactly who you wish to be in the sense of all of these wonderful works you've done 
what was that period like where you're letting go of the academy, you're kind of jumping into publishing, but did you have a sense of direction or was it just doing the next thing that came along? Well, um, let's be honest, uh, in order to do what you want to do in life, money helps. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it would be wonderful to be independently wealthy, which I was not, certainly not then. I'm kind of, sort of now. I mean, if I'm very frugal, I can get by on not very much. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, the point is that, you know, you need an income, you know, and and um, I got enough of an income at Prince, uh, at, at my publishing company, Chelsea House Publishers, to, to do my work on the side. And quite frankly, <laughs> I must have mentioned it in my work on my biography as well but i did some work on lovecraft at the office in in dead time that, that was you know hey nobody cared as long as i met my deadlines uh, for, for the you know for the projects i was working on there they didn't care what i did um uh, so i in fact i wrote one entire book at my office uh, a book on lovecraft in 1996 it was pretty funny uh, because i basically could write it off the top of my head with minimal amounts of, of research or reference or i brought in a few books that i needed and just just wrote the whole thing in my office uh, uh, anyway um but uh where was i going with this um as i say i have gotten a huge amount of assistance from my mother financially from my two different wives <laughs> one after the other um uh, and you know just other other factors like that i mean what i have done in my life has not made a lot of money i mean you just don't make much money as a scholar or even as an editor uh, i mean i produce in volume you know i have, I have 350 published books at this point Merely because no single title ever makes a whole lot of money. I mean, rarely. Uh, my my biography of Lovecraft has done pretty well. And, you know, it's been translated in a couple of languages, and that's that's made some income. But you know, I, I'm not in Stephen King territory, not even remotely. I mean, not even remotely. I mean, uh, and yet I've managed to save enough to get by now, and I'm I'm reasonably comfortable. But I know so many other people who have just as much talent or more talent in some specific areas than that I do who don't have that financial luxury, who, who have been stuck in, in jobs that, you know, require all their attention and, and they don't, it doesn't leave them much time to do work on the side or, or other factors like that. You know, I still think I've just been lucky. I mean, a lot of it is luck. A lot of it is, you know, determination to do what I want to do, but, but luck has factored a lot into it. No, it's really interesting to hear you say, and, and, and I agree. I mean, there, there is always some factor of everyone is at the blackjack table and some people win and some people don't even I, I, I agree in, in the creative fields that I'm connected to, there are people who on raw talent should absolutely be at the top of their field. And for a bunch of reasons, they're not. Um, it does tend to be the people who are just wildly stubborn beyond all rational meaning who just keep on going and who are aware of the sacrifices involved because I, I, I think there are almost always trade-offs and we don't like to always admit them. One of the most obvious things I think is um, if you're heading into territory where you may not have a lot of money, you have to think seriously, I think, about are you going to have kids? Are you going to have certain luxuries in your life? Or are you just going to go for it? And I think all of those distractions and 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 other demands, they are the things that gradually pull away from moving forward towards the thing that you think you want. Yeah, I mean, I decided at a fairly early age that, that raising children was not for me. I mean, it's just not. I mean more power to them who want who do that i mean it's it's very very hard work uh, uh, you know and and but it's it's not something that i put a lot of uh 
uh, interest in, and uh, maybe I would have been good at it. I mean, I would have loved my children, no doubt. Would have wanted to do the best for them, um, but it just happened that I, you know, I went in a different direction. I mean, you know, uh, going back to my my own sort of social. Um, um, in inhibitions to some degree. I mean, I didn't marry for the first time until I was 43 years old, uh, and my wife was only a little younger and then or basically well beyond childbearing age. Um, I courted her for a long time. We don't even get it. Well, we, it's, I talked about it in my biography. But it's an excellent story. It's a, it's a very strange <laughs> story. Then I ended up divorcing her. We really didn't. Anyway, we don't want to. I don't want to go into that. But um, we weren't as well suited as I thought we were. But the great thing it did was to bring me, take me away from New York City, which I had come to loathe. I mean, I loved it when I first got there as, a, as a, in my twenties, but by the time I was in my early forties, I, I really detested the place. I, it was just not for me. It was too too busy, too crowded, too hectic. I had to get away from it, and and she took me to Seattle, Washington, which is a wonderful, livable city, beautiful, you know, green city. We call it the Emerald City. And then we divorced, and then I met my current wife right here, and, and we're as happy as we can be, and uh, it's, it's been great. Nice. And and now I was reading that um, I think you're still spending a lot of time editing Lovecraft's letters, which, as you've said, are incredibly voluminous, but you're also taking time to come back to music, which was an early passion of yours as well. Yeah, that's a very strange development. Again, uh, my first wife... Um, was involved in a choir here. We have many different choirs, small groups, uh, actually some not so small, um, uh, community choirs as we call them. They're not associated with the church, uh, even though our particular uh, choir director, a very religious man, which is fine, uh, and we sing mostly sacred music, which is fine also. Some of the greatest music ever written is sacred, uh, let's be honest with you. Um, and he is a tremendous musician, and I got into that choir. I, I had done singing way back when I was in high school. In my in my high school, uh, I played both an instrument. I played violin for many years, and I sang in a choir. Uh, was okay at it, you know, nothing special, but you know, I could do it. Um, but when we got to Seattle, we uh, we went into this choir, and I had a tremendous time. I, I said, "Oh, this is great." I mean, <laughs> literature is fabulous, but music calls up i don't know something different in your mm. brain or something i don't know what it is even even vocal music i mean you're still speaking words but it's something totally different um it must call up other parts of your your mind or something i don't know what it is uh it's a tremendous experience i mean i mean uh, I, I can't even begin to describe it uh, i i never want to live without music um and so i sang in the squire since basically 2002 uh, so over the next 15 years, I said, this is great. I, I love it. Uh, we sang all different types of music from, from Renaissance up to contemporary. Uh, and some of these contemporary songs that we sung by people like uh, uh, Morton Lauritsen, one of the great uh, choral uh, composers of today, Stephen Paulus, the late Stephen Paulus. He died just recently, uh, sadly enough. Uh, a number of other composers like that. I said, boy, this music is really good. I mean, very different from the uh, Baroque uh, Renaissance music that I had uh, grown up with as a, as a child, but fabulous stuff. And I had always had my heart set on being a composer. I had tried to compose music in high school and college. Didn't really get very well. I was there. I was doing composition for instruments. But now that I had sung so much of this music, I said, maybe I can do choral music. It never occurred to me before, but I had learned enough about choral music to 
to take a shot at it. And I'd always try, uh, had in mind setting something of Lovecraft to music. Uh, a poem, poem particularly. I mean, you can't set a, a story to music. I mean, well, you could, I suppose, but it would be pretty difficult. But I wanted to set actual words of Lovecraft to music. Um, and you want to you want to choose a short poem. I mean, you can't you know you can't use a three hundred line poem or something that would take forever. So I found that one of my favorite poems of Lovecraft, not a weird poem at all, called Sunset. Just a three stanza poem about the beauty of a sunset. Um, exquisite piece of work and I and I, I tell people there are very few works in fact this this work of Lovecraft may be the only work he ever wrote in which the last word is love I don't know any word any any other text of Lovecraft that ends on the word love uh, but this one does um, so it took me several months to, to get into the habit or, or, or get into composing it I, I started a bit and I, I, I flagged I didn't know where to go came back to it some months later finished it off and my choir director said, "Hey, you know, this this isn't bad. Let's 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 put it on. We we performed it in in May of 2019, and ever since then I've been composing, you know, as much as time allows. And here's the funny thing: in 2019, particularly, I composed most of my music because I had to do a lot of traveling. In particular, I traveled to Australia. Uh, yes, a, a guy." Uh, you know, flew me in to speak at three or four different places. I think it was Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Hobart in Tasmania, and also uh, Canberra. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know that they, they they drew in hundreds of people, but you know, whatever. So uh, I, I, I genuinely felt like a celebrity there. You know, going from one place to the other. Earlier in that year, I had gone to France for this big uh, science fiction convention where the French translation of my Lovecraft biography was to appear. Um, that was great. But I did most of my composition on on the plane. <laughs> because what else do you do on a plane? I mean, I don't like watching movies. I don't really like reading. I kind of get a headache sometimes if I read a book. So I sat there on, on a plane, brought my uh, book of you know music paper along with it, and just composed music. Um, and it was funny because uh, other people, on, you know, next to me were watching me compose, you know, right there on the in my seat. And one guy said, "Can you really hear that stuff in your head?" I said, "Yeah, I can hear it in my head. <laughs> if I couldn't, I wouldn't be doing this." <laughs> you know, but it just amazed people that I could do that. But it's really not that difficult. Um, it was great fun, and I've I've composed about twelve, thirteen songs uh, based on Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, George Sterling. I set Edgar, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's poem to Helen to music, the first poem to Helen. Um, and I, I'm going to do a couple more, and then my publisher, Hippocampus Press, is going to release uh, the printed scores of these uh, compositions next year nice. uh, in a book with an accompanying CD. Now, the CD does not have actual performances uh, except Sunset, which did get recorded, and, and I, I can include that our performance of that. The other songs are going to be just basically computer generated uh, because that's all we can do during this pandemic. We haven't been able to sing for yeah. close to a year and a half, uh, and it's been very difficult for me to get people together to, to work on this stuff. So it'll just be a computerized rendition, but that should be good enough. But I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that's incredible. It's it's really interesting hearing you talk about this. Um, I was I was wondering about this as I was um, basically reading our notes. Now, I've, I'm a very, very long way behind your output, but I've spent a large chunk of my professional life dealing with words, writing them, reading them, creating them. And 
one of the things that you were saying just before about really about music just opening up this kind of different palette and this different sense of possibly emotional richness one of the challenges i've had at various times in my life is i get sick of words i mean i i it's our job we we do the thing we might be relatively good with words but at some point it feels like a diet of one food and other things sometimes music sometimes anything visual sometimes just going outside for a walk but these other emotional spectra that can open up when you're not just working with these tiny little etchings of ink that relate to concepts and seem to speak to one part of our brain do you have any of that sense especially with the music that you're doing that it's just this different food as it were it's a different place to go to oh absolutely um and i'll tell you what uh, the, the whole thing about words uh I have reached the stage, here I am, 63 years old, just turned 63 a few, weeks, a few weeks ago. Words don't affect me as much as they used to. Yeah. It's, it's almost frightening. I mean, I don't, I, I don't get moved by words as much as I should, uh, or as I feel I should. And maybe that's partially because I have to read so much analytically. I'm reading yes. texts for to analyze them, to study them, to criticize them. And in particular, I'm reading submissions to my various magazines or anthologies uh, a certain number of which let me be honest are <coughs> not exactly top flight um so i'll tell you it has been a lot it's a it's a rare work of literature uh, contemporary or or earlier that really it, it stirs an emotional reaction to me and, and i i find that rather sad here i devoted my whole life to literature and now it doesn't affect me anymore i mean i mean it does of course i mean surely i i can appreciate a well-crafted work of literature whether it be a short story or a poem or whatever you i mean i i said yes this is very well done uh it, it ought to get out there you know if it's an unpublished work i'd love to get it to print blah 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 but in terms of emotional resonance I, I, I tell you, the, the last authors, at, at least in this field, who have really um, affected me were Thomas Ligotti. When I first read him in the early 1990s or maybe late 80s, he totally blew me away. I mean, I wouldn't say exactly, not at all like w w my reaction to Lovecraft because I was so much younger and that's it's not all the same thing. But uh, uh, Ligotti, there's something, there's a power in his work that is really unnerving and, and that really got to me. Uh, and later on, I think the only other writer really speaking, well, I, I, I'll have to put in a few plugs for some of my own um, protégés. Well, uh, there's one, well, Caitlin R. Kiernan, Caitlin R. Kiernan, who's not a protégé of mine at all. Uh, I've worked with her on things, but she she's a fine, fine writer. I, I've, had, I've been lucky to publish some of her uh, stories in my anthologies. Uh, but there are some other people who are my disciples or my, my pupils, if you want to call, call it that. Jonathan Jonathan Thomas in Providence, Michael Aronovitz, uh, a more uh, recent writer even, Curtis M. Lawson, and several others. They have done some really outstanding work that does affect me, But uh, uh, and, I, and I've tried to help them precisely because their work affects me as so much else does not. Um, yeah, but that's why I have to turn to music sometimes, or to film, I, or even, you know, some television shows. Uh, my wife and I make sure to, you know, make a time for, you know, relaxation, uh, entertainment every day. You know, we have dinner around six o'clock. Next two or three hours, we watch a movie or something, and I'm by no means an authority on film. I like what I like. Um, 
but uh, you know, and I I don't like what I don't like. I don't like bloody horror, grisly, you know, blood films. I just won't watch those kind of films. Um, I prefer older films, black and white, glorious black and white. How can you not like that? Um, anyway, um, it does provide a release and a and a and a break from from this onslaught of wars that, that otherwise basically dominates my whole life. That's that's yes, that's very on. On Thomas Ligotti, I, I agree. Just to me, um, he he occupies some kind of emotional territory and a shading that is al- almost unique that I've almost never encountered anywhere else. And that's that's very much the same reaction I had when I read his stuff. I was like this, the somehow twisting the the base units of words into something very different. And I was I was really impressed by that. It's interesting you say about taking the time for entertainment. I, when we were discussing this podcast, you pointed out very strongly that you are not interested in things like video games, and that's very fair. One of the ways that me and my partner really spend time together is we we will go on adventures in video games together, and it's the same idea of we're relaxing next to each other on a couch, and we each have our own video game console set up, and we're playing in the same world, but we're basically going on a little adventure, maybe a two or three hour little adventure together, and there's there's an emotional shading to this that is completely different from anything to do with words. And even for us, for sort of watching a film or a TV show together, we get to go on a little journey together without leaving the house. And it's such a wonderful relief to just be really curled up next to my loved one and going on an adventure. It's not solitary. It doesn't involve a thousand words a minute. It's an, and, and, and there's just, I think as I get older, especially, you just really start to hunger for more variety and more enjoyment from these different emotional experiences beyond just, again, the kind of words on the page. That's, I, I think we're very different in our tastes, but it's, it's really interesting to hear. It's, it's um, really some kind of treasure. Oh, I have no doubt that, that these video games, you know, are, are very stimulating and, 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 you know, take you to another world. I, you know, I, I do love film for that reason. It engulfs you in a whole, you know, world an alternate alternate reality i mean it's so it's amazing how a film just sucks you into that uh, yes that 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 uh, ambiance or that 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 environment that it has created uh and you know even even not very well done movies or you know older movies you know where where the you know the settings are somewhat crude perhaps by today's standards or the special effects are crude or non-existent even those films you just get into them and you know it's 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 uh, you know you're in that world for for the, the hour and a half to two hours, and it's uh, it's 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 very exciting. Absolutely, and and um, part of my professional work involves essentially experience design. So you are you 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 are thinking sometimes quite analytically about how do you spark experiences, and you always have this tension which 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 exists very strongly between how much of the experience are you trying to provide versus how much are you trying to spark in a person. I think when we were both young, when we read these things that that really get us when we're young. A few words just opens up a, a vast experience in our heads. Our, our our minds and imaginations do so much work. And the reverse of that is games especially, um, because they're increasingly sophisticated, they increasingly do a great deal of the heavy lifting for you. There's there's less and less left to the imagination. But what but there's always that thing of the real key to the experience is it's a spark that lets your mind do the work because your mind will offer colors and a depth of experience that can't really be provided to you. 
And I think that's one of the things that Lovecraft does, right? Like you've described it in the book and on on this cast about you read a little bit, you read a page, and your mind is on fire. You're you're being plunged into this experience in this world and this territory that just has so many possibilities. It lets your mind do the work. And that's that spectrum to me between words on a page all the way through to the very rich interactive experiences we have today. But there's a tension that needs to be navigated there because ultimately your own mind is the one that always has to do the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I have been trying to link my my interest in Lovecraft, in words, and in film. As I say, I'm, I, I regard myself not at all as a professional in, in the film world uh, because I, I've actually been working with a man named Ryan Grulick for what is called a biopic on H.P. Lovecraft, uh, a biographical <laughs> picture. Now, and I wrote the screenplay. <laughs> Understand me, I knew nothing about writing screenplays. I mean, literally nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we got, uh, I'll very quickly go into this. We got, uh, this is, a, okay, we, we wanted to do a biopic about Lovecraft. You know, there have been any number of good ones done, not on Lovecraft, but on, on other writers or other figures in history. And I said, that's a great venue to, because, I mean, Lovecraft didn't lead the most interesting life in the world, but, there are points of interest that that can make Lovecraft a more human figure than he sometimes appears on the page. And in particular, we focused on Lovecraft's relations with his the woman that he married, Sonia Green, uh, chiefly because that you you get, at least you can get a, a a female lead, you know, of some importance in there. Otherwise, you know, Lovecraft's friends and colleagues were all men for, for, for the most part. Um, but here, if you want to focus on the on their relationship over the years, um, you know. Uh, that might that might lead something. We got somebody else who really didn't know much about Lovecraft to write a screenplay, and he has a you know he's I wouldn't I don't know if he was a professional screenplay writer, but he he knew how to write screenplays. Let's just say that much. And he spent some time re researching the subject, and then he produced something that well, let's just say I it was not what I wanted <laughs> exactly. So I I told Ryan, um, let me have a crack at this. <laughs> uh, at least I got the format of the screenplay. I, at least you know from seeing what this guy had done, I could say, okay, this is how you write a screenplay. Well, I wrote a 120-page screenplay in eight days because it was all in my mind. I said I knew yeah. exactly what I wanted. Uh, you know, not that 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 uh, result is going to be the absolute finished result because these things always uh, undergo modification. I mean, uh, film par excellence is a collaborative venture. There's no way you can do it all yourself. But nevertheless, um, the screenplay has gone through a number of different drafts. It's called The Lovecrafts, plural, uh, meaning Sonia and, and Howard. Um, but it's basically, I would still say, about 90% my, my work. In fact, I've added a couple of scenes of my own uh, to fill in some things that, that I felt needed to, to be filled in. Uh, we're shopping this around. I mean, it's a very difficult time right now, you know, just coming out of the pandemic to, to get films going. Uh, and, of course, you know, again, money is going to be the obstacle here. Uh, we want to be able to do this right. We don't want to just uh, an amateur venture uh, that will look shoddy and, and unprofessional. So there we are, but and, I, and I'm aware that That's these awesome. kinds of things take years sometimes, many years, but I'm still hoping that somebody out there will finance us. <laughs> if anybody's listening, <laughs> you know, let's, nice. I, I hope we can do it because I think, you know, and the critical thing is to get a good actor playing Lovecraft, someone who at least vaguely looks like him and then uh, can can get that personality across. Nice. It's really interesting to say my, my own experience of parts of the entertainment industry is that there will, on on almost any project, 
there will be a long period of false starts and lack of interest and then suddenly often out of the blue there's a great deal of interest and things happen very fast or almost on too fast a timetable it's it's very much it moves like a glacier and then it moves like lightning yeah i'm we're just hoping you know as i say things i things are starting to happen now in the film industry again i, I hope we're coming out of this uh, this very strange situation where uh, I, I understand the film i wouldn't say the film sh industry shut down but by any means but um you know we were really hampered in terms of what we could do and you know we just can't get together and can't can't do anything um and of course it's going to be an independent film it's not exactly it's not exactly uh you know paramount material uh which is fine frankly I, we want to try to maintain as much control over it as possible we don't want to you know make it as some sort of sensational film you know with you know which is untrue to lovecraft and, and untrue to the history um so there you are so um you know and we're, we're trying other things as well um but I, as i say i am i am not at all a professional in the, in the film world but I, I i just hope this can come up come to be someday that's wonderful good luck with it and speaking of um really speaking of lovecraft's worldview and i've i've been fascinated by this development in your career over, over a long time you're working on a very large history of atheism is my understanding uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I expect to spend next three to five or even ten years on it. I don't, I don't know how long. I call it a nice. world, world history of atheism. Uh, let me go, go back. Uh, as I mentioned, um, I first got interested in the subject, um, through Lovecraft's letters. Now, uh, when, when my family came to this country, uh, from India, I was only five years old. Uh, my two sisters were older, um, but my father, a great economist in India, wrote several books about Indian economics. He was—he called himself a secularist. I don't believe he meant that he was an atheist full-fledged. Uh, he just believed in the separation of church and state, uh, which is unfortunately not happening in India right now, but let that pass. Um, uh, but he also believed that um, uh, personal religious belief should be one's own decision. Uh, in other words, one should not be indoctrinated into a religion at an early age. As, as Lovecraft himself said, you could you could indoctrinate anybody into any sort of religion you want to if you got them early enough. I, you, you could make somebody believe in the Greek gods if you if you you know got them at an early enough age. So he said to my mother, who's who's a pretty devout Hindu. She said he said, let's let our children decide what they want to believe in. Don't you know, shove the religion down their throats, but don't dis discourage them from believing if they want to believe something. Uh, there were books about religion in, in our house, various different books on, on Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam, whatever, and we were encouraged to look at them and read them, and if, if we wanted to believe them, then fine. But, so I was up to the age of about 15, I was what might be called a passive atheist. Uh, I didn't think there was a God out there, but I really didn't devote much thought about the matter is just just live my life i was a kid basically you know uh, studying you know literature getting you know getting into science fiction and horror and fantasy um but when i found lovecraft's letters i said you know this guy makes some really good arguments uh, in support of atheism uh i mean and 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 i mean really sharp um Many years later, I compiled a volume of his uh, atheist writings, and I was happy to do that. And that book has actually gotten translated into into at least Italian and maybe maybe another language. But um, so I, Lovecraft was the key here, um, and 
not only in his own writings, in his own letters or whatever, but in leading me to other thinkers, uh, whether it be Nietzsche or Bertrand Russell or, or a number of other uh, uh, secular philosophers. Uh, and of course, I've gone way beyond Lovecraft in that regard. Um, but again, he was the, the source uh, of this interest. So now, I around, I don't know, 2000, maybe a little earlier than that, um, I, I want to do more serious work on atheism, uh, again, inspired by Lovecraft. And I said, let me compile an anthology of, a of sort of historical anthology of atheism. Um, and the leading publisher in the U.S. of this kind of work is Prometheus Books, uh, located in, in New York State. They had produced two anthologies of this sort uh, uh, earlier, and I felt that they lacked certain important texts, you know, that conveyed uh, the kind of history of atheism in various different regards. So I compiled a volume for them called simply called Atheism, A Reader, and that did really, really well for them. That's one one of my, I wouldn't say a bestseller exactly, but it's been in constant print for, for 20 years uh, and still sells for them, so that's good. Uh, subsequently, I wrote myself a, a, a series of rather pungent attacks upon religious thinkers, whether it be Jerry Falwell or William F. Buckley or uh, any number of other ones, uh, and I called it God's Defenders, What They Believe and Why They Are Wrong. Uh, that was a, just a polemical work. I, I had a great fun writing that one. Uh, and that got me into some, some a bit of trouble. <laughs> Publishers Weekly did not like that book because they felt <laughs> come down a little too hard on some of these people and, and, and sort of lampooned them, which actually I did. Uh, that's where I started developing what I what I call my, my technique of satirical criticism, uh, <laughs> which I picked up basically from, from Beerson and H.L. Mencken. But, uh, uh, so I did that. Uh, and then, I, 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 contrary, I did another book um, called... Um, uh, the Unbelievers, uh, uh, The Roots of Modern Atheism, uh, in which I, I uh, devoted different chapters on, uh, you know, thinkers who had promoted atheism, particularly over the last century or so. Uh, again, uh, Russell, A.J. Ayer, Lovecraft, uh, Mencken, uh, Gore Vidal. I loved Gore Vidal. I was lucky enough to meet him on one occasion. Um, uh, so I said, you know, so I've, and of course, I my classical learning... Uh, I had studied a lot of the ancient thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, pre-Socratics, uh, Epicurus, Lucretius. So now, uh, I earlier this year, I said, you know, it appears that I'm in somewhat of a unique position in studying this entire history of atheism uh, from, you know, the classical Greeks all the way up to the present day. Obviously, I have a lot to fill in uh, in, in, in various regards. And also... I determined to do a world perspective. Uh, yes. And that actually has been the most difficult thing right now because I regret to say that I have been more or less Eurocentric in a lot of my my study of philosophy. And I it's it's been a, a, a stretch of my mind to understand Eastern ways of thinking uh, and, and other, other schools of thought beyond Western civilization. And of course, in order to write a book of this sort, which is going to be several volumes, I would imagine, you have to study the religion first, and that is also yeah. something that I have to go because religion got there, got there first, way ahead of atheism. You know, uh, I mean, we've 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 been we've been a religious uh, society ever since there have been human beings. You know, so I had to study the history of religion, uh, uh, going back to you know the Paleolithic age. How did religion emerge 
in human society? Uh, um, you know, what are the major schools of religion or, or, or different sects in Asia, in uh, uh, Europe, in, in Africa, in, in Australia, in, in um, uh, Latin America, uh, you know, wherever. Um, so I wrote a big chapter on the Greek philosophers, about 40,000 word chapter, and now I'm going back to write the chapter on the, the sort of the origin and development of religion around the world. And then I'm going to go forward. Um, but I expect this to take years. Uh, I wanted to start now because, for a very practical reason, um, during the last year or so, the, the, the libraries around here, uh, as everywhere, I think, are basically closed. You know, my university library yeah. at University of Washington, a great library, you can't go into it. <laughs> you know, you can now get books out of it. You, you can, you know, request them online and you pick them up right outside the door, which is fine. But sometimes... Uh, I've made discoveries just by fishing. You know, you just have to go through the shelves and yeah. just look for things, and you can't do that yet. But I'm hoping they will open up later on, and that'll allow me to do a little more fishing. But I'll tell you, it's it's been an adventure, and I expect to learn a whole lot that I never learned before uh, about this whole subject. That sounds like a wonderful journey. I, just as you're saying, I um, from the little that I know, I I have a lot of affection for the the Australian Aboriginal. Um, views especially because they go back so far they go back tens of thousands of years and from the little that i understand of the original views and i am nowhere near an expert um this idea of time and territory being this incredibly fluid thing one of the things that lovecraft talks about sometimes is time itself and in the sense of it being um quite fluid and that aboriginal idea of there's this physical landscape which to some extent is the interior of australia and the idea that if something happened yesterday or it happened 3,000 years ago in this place, that's to some extent irrelevant because it's all just territory that you move through as part of the dreaming. I, I always found that a, a, a wonderful perspective that doesn't line up with a lot of the extremely well-established religions that came later. I'd, um, really, whether you agree with it or not, it's, it's, it's a wonderful flavor going really going back to our different flavors of experience. Just just a really cool way of seeing the world. I, I take it that that is basically what Peter Weir was trying to do in the film, The Last Wave. Yes. It's sort of the, the idea of dream time or something like that. Yes. Which is why, oh, well, another reason, well, that's one thing, but uh, I, I've always been convinced that that film has a deep Lovecraftian influence. I mean, in fact, I think it's unmistakable. Uh, even though I, I've read, a, I've looked through a couple of books about Peter Weir, and nobody seems to acknowledge... <laughs> The Lovecraft influence on that, but to me, it is simply unmistakable. Uh, he clearly took a, a key element out of the shadow, out of time, uh, and and right at the end of that story, you can see how or a film how how that comes through. Um, you know, because that story itself is set in Australia, at least the the, the concluding part of it. Um, but yeah, the 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 idea of of, of uh, you know this this. Uh, their their you know Aboriginal Aboriginal worldview and I I have to study Native American uh, things too and I haven't found quite the right book on that subject yet uh, but I'm going to get to that uh, it is a challenge I think for for you know anybody raised in the West uh, and and I really have been uh, to to understand these kinds of of things even even in things like Hinduism and 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 certainly uh, some of the early Chinese religions they're they're really um, very distant from from western ways of thinking and it, it it requires a real stretch of the imagination to 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 understand or even begin to understand uh their outlook 
Do you find that, um, as a shorthand, the enlightenment gets in the way because so much of our brains gets trained to think in terms of evidence and proof and cases and to some extent scientific method and so much of that sort of tool set is perhaps not that useful if you're trying to really understand the worldview. Well, yes and no. Uh, quite frankly, I think the, the Enlightenment was right <laughs> in most of that. <laughs> I, think, I think we do need evidence. Otherwise, you can believe anything you want to believe. I mean, it's absurd. Uh, you know, I mean, come on, let's be serious. Um, uh, religion has lasted so long precisely because people don't look at the evidence, uh, you know, and it doesn't have to, have to be necessarily scientific evidence, although not, uh, some very compelling scientific evidence uh, uh, needs to be taken into account to, to understand or to, to have a proper you know view of the world. But uh, uh, there may be other aspects of Western thinking or Western a Western outlook that that hinder one's ability to understand different cultures. I I, I, I get that, um, but you know uh, I, I I still I, I am one who does defend Western civilization because I think we got a lot of things right. You know we did get a lot of things right. We got a lot of things wrong too in in other areas. But I'm not entirely sure that our philosophical outlook is one of them. Uh, I think that we got basically right. Nice. Do you, do you have, at this point, do you have the sense of a roadmap of the whole world history of atheism? Do you have a sort of, you've talked about the first book and, and then the next piece, but do you know where it's going? I ha I do have an outline, but again, yeah. uh, you know, and I did this outline a, a couple of years ago because I was really wanted to do this then, but other things got in the way and then the pandemic came and uh, I had to sort of curtail or shift my focus in terms of what I was doing, but uh, again, that outline, again, is largely devoted to Western uh, thought or Western thinkers or Western movements. Uh, so, again, I need to develop this world world perspective, and I'm doing it. So it's, it's and, I, and I have to confess that as somebody who really was raised in, in the West, uh, that's going to be the focus. It has to be. I mean, I, sure. there's just no way I can, you know stretch my mind to to understand you know the the history of china let us say it's just it's just too foreign to me i will certainly have in, in you know some discussion of it in fact uh, i did discover that that uh, when i'm studying uh, let's say the thought of confucius who was right on the borderline between being a, a religious figure and a, and a philosopher uh, his thought is actually quite non-theistic, and one one particular disciple of his who came well a couple of centuries later, around the second century uh, BC, this guy I've forgotten his name uh, is pretty close to an atheist, and that was quite a revelation. I mean, he, he you know he was quite quite uh, quite forthright about uh, about that that subject. So that was quite interesting, and I've gone into some detail about that. Um, but uh, you know. Uh, it's just, it's going to be a process. Uh, I'll try to follow the outline, but as Lovecraft himself says when writing fiction, yes, have an outline, but don't be, don't be, you know, uh, wedded to it. Let the, let the project develop on its own momentum. And, and then, you know, you may diverge radically from the outline or you may not, uh, but, you know, don't feel you have to stick to that outline, you know, through thick and thin. So that's where I'm at right now. Uh, I think I know where I'm going, but, you know, all these, you know, other avenues may open up, and and the one thing I'm going to do is not rush. I'm in no rush here. You know, I have to understand this material. I don't want to take shortcuts. I don't want to just borrow from other people. I want to read primary texts, and that's what's going to take a long time because, I, you know, you you take shortcuts, you end up making mistakes, and and that serves nobody. Um, and you know, 
I think I have enough time. I'm not. I'm not an old man yet. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty vigorous. I like to think. And and again, I go back to, to, to my relative financial security. I am in a position in that way and in other ways to do this project where other people who probably could do it better than I could are not. And so I'm doing it. Nice. It's it sounds like a very worthwhile journey to set out on. I like to think about the planning. We always say here it's um the planning is very useful. The plan itself will probably be thrown away. But the process, of course, was, yeah, absolutely. Um it's on a on a daily basis or a a, a weekly basis, you wake up in your house, you have your books, you have your cats, you have your wife. Um how does it all feel? Are you are you happy? Oh, absolutely. As I say, I mean, I, I thank my stars. There's no God, but I thank my stars <laughs> that, that I've been able to do this sort of work. You know, I have been a freelance writer for more than 25 years. I, I worked at my publishing company for 11 years from 84 to 95, and then they kind of went bust. Um, and I was basically <laughs> thrown out of work. Uh, and I struggled at that time because, I, you know, I had reached a level... Uh, in my in my company, where uh, getting another job at that level was difficult. I mean, I was you know fairly senior member of the company at that point, and and uh, I of course I tried to get another job, figuring I you have to get a job, you know. Uh, but somehow, I mean, I didn't for one thing. I just didn't find a position suiting to me. But by then, I decided I had somehow increased my level of of writing to the point that it was actually bringing in some money. And, and it was at this point, by the way, that my mother really helped me financially for the next several years until I more or less established myself as a freelance writer. Um, and, and I've just been able to go on from there. Uh, and now I'm almost to the point of just basically be able to live on my investments. Um, and that way I'm, I'm completely free to do write whatever I feel like writing without having to think about money. And I, you know, it, 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 it galls me that Lovecraft never was in that position. He was so yeah. desperately poor. I, 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 I can't tell you how how anguished it makes me feel that that Lovecraft wasn't in that position, and yet he still maintained this incredible artistic in, in, integrity. He never buckled down. He never wrote for the masses. He never wrote just to make money, and he died in poverty. But he died doing what he wanted to do, and that's that's one of the most admirable things about him. Um, but, um, that's just an aside there, but as a, as a freelancer, the most important thing you can do is discipline. And luckily, I guess I've always had that discipline. <laughs> you know, it's funny, my, my wife and my, my mother always say, oh, you were very spoiled as a kid. And maybe I was, you know, uh, I mean, let's go back. Okay. I'm the youngest of three children. Um, and I was the only boy. And I'm sorry to say that even today, uh, Indian families want a boy want a male heir for whatever reason uh, and my mother still doesn't is not very comfortable with the fact that i have not produced offspring so uh, this part of the family is basically defunct with me but that's okay um anyway um so i guess i was spoiled as a child i was basically you know I, you know we didn't have a lot of money but i i was given a lot of things that that uh, you know if, if i wanted them uh, but I still managed to, to develop a, a good work work ethic, as as you said, from from a fairly early age. I don't know why. I just uh, just I wanted to get things done, you know. Um, but discipline is so important, you know. Uh, when you go to a job, usually the discipline is enforced from without. Yeah. When you're your own boss, you have to do it on your own. It's so easy. 
to goof off, to do nothing, to or to you know, to do it, work in a scattershot manner. And I know some people I won't mention who they are, <laughs> who tend to work in a very scattershot manner and never get anything done. I I learned early on that that is not the way to go. If you really want to get a project finished, you have to be disciplined. You have to you know work on it every day until it's done. Now I don't work on a single project all day. I mean I couldn't. It's just it's it's too much. You have to you have to you know vary your routine. Otherwise uh, you you won't you know get the project done properly. And of course, I'm always involved in a multitude of different projects, you know. Um, so I, I, I have scheduled my day uh, around working on three or four different projects, usually for you know an hour or two at a time. Uh, my 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 uh, <laughs> dividing line is my cups of tea. <laughs> when when do I have my tea? <laughs> <laughs> okay, from from morning to till till noon, I'm working on some particular project, and then after lunch, up to like three o'clock tea, I'm working on another project. And then after that, you know, it, it goes like that. That's so my my tea breaks are are, are when I shift gears mentally, um, and I take naps. I'll take at least one major nap uh, in the yes. afternoon because I'm getting to the stage, and I've been doing this for a long time. I, I do need to recharge my batteries. I, I I get tired in the mid afternoons, and I said, oh man, and then your brain's doesn't doesn't function very well so a little power nap as they call it uh half an hour maybe a little more uh and then i you know i have a cup of peppermint tea but peppermint tea nice. doesn't have the caffeine i i like caffeine i need caffeine three times a day but peppermint tea doesn't have caffeine but it's supposedly also is, is a bit of a stimulant uh, and that gets me going for another hour or so or two that i'm working and at that point, mm -hmm. I, I do take a walk. I have to, you know, I, I realize that, that to keep your mind working, you have to keep your body functioning too. And I probably haven't done enough exercise throughout my life uh, that, that I should have, but I want to make sure to keep healthy because, again, I know people who are, you know, elderly people who never looked after their bodies and it's their mm -hmm. bodies that are giving out, not their minds. And I don't want to be in that position. That's I, I, I know people who at the age of about 30, all of their 20s came calling and um, that exact thing, the the physical well-being thing, just um, I, I've always, for one reason or another, <clears throat> sorry, been, been quite good about looking after myself. And as I head into my early 40s, um, you can see so many people just dropping off a cliff in various ways. And all, all I do is live pretty simply and it keeps on working. Um, you're saying about the routines. I, um, very similar. I, around about three o'clock in the afternoon, I am a vegetable and I need a nap. That, that, that is, there is nothing useful happening at three o'clock in the afternoon. I, I chunk it out by, I, I wake up very early and I've found over the years that most of my most creative or intense work gets done in the kind of early morning fog. So about four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, there's several hours of real productivity and then I kind of emerge from my bed. I do, I do my first shift in bed. And everything after that is um, this kind of decreasing series of levels of intensity. So um, essentially admin work gets done at the end of the day. Meetings and physical interactions and stuff are kind of the middle of the day. All of the real thinking gets done first thing in the morning. And I just kind of repeat that routine as a series of slots that I fill things into, depending on what I'm trying to do. And I think we're the same way. Like I, I find it very. I would probably almost never work, for instance, for sort of 12, 15 hours at a stretch on one thing. But if I do two hours on something every day for a while, 
It's the marathon. After a while, that builds up. I, I read about you doing the transcriptions of Ambrose Bierce for a couple of hours a day for a very long time, and that terrified me, but you clearly got a wonderful result out of it. Uh, it was, yeah. I mean, it just struck it part of the structure of my day. And not only Bierce, yeah. I spent nine years transcribing the work of H.L. Mencken. You know how much <laughs> that came to? 12 million words. 12 million words. I, I wasn't even aware of it. I just started typing this, and, and unfortunately, the the a lot of the, at that time I, I didn't have very good uh, equipment in terms of scanners and things like that, and so some of the copies I got for this material I, I just had to go from like bad microfilm printouts. I had to type them <laughs> manually, brute typing. I mean, luckily I could type fast, but man, just, I don't know how I did it. I don't even want to think about it now, but. Oh. When I got to the end, you know, I, I was finished. So what do I do with myself? It's like, there's this big <laughs> gap of time. Like, you know, like what now? It's like it was like a, you know, a tooth was extracted, and I could feel the hole in my mouth where the tooth had been. It was a very strange feeling. Um, but of course, I managed to fill in the time now with doing other things. And of course, now <laughs> I've been publishing all this work. I mean, uh, you know, much as I regard Amazon as the evil empire, and they are. Uh, they do allow you to publish, you know, self-published books, and that's fine because, yeah. you know, there is nobody who could do the collected works of H.L. Mencken in print. I mean, just nobody. I mean, we're talking about a, a thousand articles in, in magazines, 5,000 articles in newspapers and books and so much else. And I have been publishing these works, you know, I have done 44 volumes of H.L. Mencken's writings <laughs> on Amazon. They're all out there. Uh, I, I hope somebody's buying them because <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> but, you know, most of the work was done before, you know, when, when I was typing these texts out. The actual physical production of these books actually doesn't take that much work. Um, and I should say that's that's part of my secret for for what it, what looked like, you know, this, this productivity that I have. Um, I did a lot of the research on whatever projects I did early on. I mean, way early on, my 20s and 30s. For example, nice. when I was at Princeton, um, uh, their library, uh, you know, the universe main main library, which anybody actually anybody off the street can go into, um, has a tremendous collection of bound periodicals, particularly from England, uh, you know, from the nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. Uh, and so I started looking at this stuff and said, "Boy, there's a lot of good stuff in here." Uh, I got it. For example, I got a bibliography of Arthur Mackin. Uh, which was published whenever, 1965 or thereabouts. And it listed a lot of these contributions that Mackin had in, in, in these, these magazines. I just photocopied all this stuff, and it's been sitting in my files for 20, 30, 40 years. I did the same with with, uh, with Lord Dunsany, uh, although there I had to compile my own bibliography of Dunsany with, with the, the help from Daryl Schweitzer, who, who'd been doing Dunsany for a long time. And and we, we once spent uh, uh, an entire day, or maybe a couple days even, at the University of Pennsylvania Library, which is, again, a library that anybody can go into uh, just to look around. You can't check books out if you're not a student or, or faculty, but you can go in there. And we just canvassed their, their periodical holding and found all this Dunsany stuff that we that nobody knew about before. It, it was tremendously exciting, but it has to be done. You know, I wouldn't say exactly page by page, but something sort of like that. Uh, you know, it's it's because there are no indexes to some of these things. You just have to, you know, have an educated guess as to where this stuff might have appeared and take a look. You know, so I've been relying on this sort of research 
for a lot of these projects that that seem to be happening very quickly, you know, now, uh, but because I'd already done the research 20, 30 years ago. That's really interesting. It's, um, um, there are so many parallels in my other life doing um, essentially around upfront investments versus um, over time, you you see a lot of businesses doing this where it's it's all under the surface for such a long time and then suddenly out of nowhere something appears and everyone's like, oh my God, that appeared overnight. And it's no, there was there was about 10 to 20 years of um, things under the radar. I I really enjoy, I've, I've seen you do this a few times, including in your autobiography, um, this, this very casual way that you'll just sort of... Um, talk about the number of books i think in in the autobiography it was 285 you just sort of casually mentioned oh that was that was book number 285 and every author in the world sir just sort of falls off their chair and goes good god that's that's insane it's 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 a really awesome um move to just kind of casually drop on the floor the 285 <laughs> volumes and counting when I, when I when i got to 350 my wife said you know <laughs> who, who who are you? Who are you uh, uh, competing against? I said myself. I said, well, Isaac Asimov. We have. I have to figure out exactly yes. how many how many books Isaac Asimov produced. But I'll tell you, Asimov, in many instances, especially later in his career, simply lent his name to these anthologies yes. that I suspect yeah. he had very little to do with. Whereas I like to think that I have a lot to do, in fact, entirely to do with with the books that I that bear my name. I, I'll tell you one thing though. In these Lovecraft Letters editions now, I know we've done almost 20 volumes with another five to go uh, over the next two or three years. Uh, my colleague, David E. Schultz, he lives in Milwaukee. We have never lived in the same town. We've always done work remotely. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, now with computers and email and, and, and things like that, it's much easier. But uh, uh, Schultz is a heroic researcher. I mean, he's, he's he has much greater computer skills than I do. And... It's just not only that, but he was the guiding force behind this whole project because we first, you know, when I got to the John Hay Library at Brown, they have, you know, two, two or three thousand letters or so. And they, it was a, it's a staggering amount of material. And I said, there's there's no way I'm going to do anything with this stuff. It's just it's way too much. Uh, it's good research material. You can find out information uh, that would be helpful, you know, for whatever purpose. But I was focused on on studying or, or and editing Lovecraft's fiction, poetry, and then and then his essays. I wasn't even wanting to do anything with the letters. Um, but Schultz uh, said, okay, uh, Lovecraft's letters to August Derleth have been a, uh, a, a purchased by the Wisconsin Historical Society uh, in, in, in Madison, Wisconsin. And then they produced a microfilm of it. Um, and so I think he sent me the microfilm saying, let's just print out this stuff. Maybe we'll type it up. You know, I, I said, you're an insane guy. Why, why would anybody want to do that? Uh, so <laughs> I think I tell this in my biography. Uh, he sent me this microfilm reel. It's like a thousand impressions, you know, a thousand pages or so. I At that time, I had access to New York University Library. I, I could check books out. I, you know, I could go there. They had a microfilm room uh, where you could print out stuff. And <laughs> again, here's, here's something, again, was there somebody who's looking after me? I don't know. I got to one of these microphone printers, and I started, you know, and you have to put in coins, you know, usually to, to, to <laughs> print out something. Somehow this machine was malfunctioning to the point that it would just print out stuff without you putting any money in there. Oh, perfect. I'm sorry, New York University. <laughs> I robbed you of a few few hundred dollars probably. I don't know how much. 
I printed out almost all those pages, a thousand pages, and paid next to nothing for them. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's illegal, I suppose, and I'm, 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 whatever. It was for a good cause, I hope. Uh, so I sent like maybe ha- I don't know if I sent all those pages to him or whatever, but. Schultz just began typing this stuff out because here, you know, you're talking about handwritten documents. There's no way you can scan them. And in 1990, there was no, you know, no scanner could possibly have done that anyway. I'm not even sure scanners existed back in 1990. But uh, anyway, he just started typing this stuff out. uh, And I said, okay, go to it. But, uh, and then he produced this, this result. I said, you know, this is important stuff. You know, we got to get this thing. I mean, that's where I started beginning to think, that Lovecraft's greatest accomplishment was not his fiction, certainly not his poetry, but his letters. It's like, yeah. God, you know, I mean, we only have, we still have only a fraction of his letters. I mean, we probably have 10, 10 to 20% of his letters uh, surviving. Uh, but what, what survives is, well, we've typed up about four and a half million words of letters. Um, and now we're getting, you know, publishing it all. But it's, it, as a literary accomplishment of, on its own, let alone put, all, putting aside all ideas of, of importance to his biography or, you know, whatever, purely as a literary accomplishment, it is a tremendous achievement. Uh, and I became convinced from Schultz that we have to get this stuff in print. Now, it took a long time. We started doing small batches of letters with Necronomicon Press in the 1990s uh, and, you know, did some good stuff. Uh, but that project basically, you know, collapsed. We then went to another publisher who did just one or two volumes, uh, but then that that folded. But now Derek Hussey of Hippocampus Press says, yes, let's do the collected Lovecraft letters, and we're going to do it in two or three years. We expect to have all the volumes published, 25 volumes, and there you are. Oh, that's amazing. So just on on, on that, do you, do you have any sense, just in terms of the letters... What was what was Lovecraft's essentially daily word count? Do you, have you ever did, well? Done I guess it varied from time to time, but hmm. he, I could swear he said at one point, somewhere, maybe later on in life, that he spent six hours a day writing correspondence. I mean, it sounds insane, but that's that's what he yeah. did. You know, it's been said many times for him, who was also pretty shy, not nearly as shy as people think he was, or or he was certainly not a recluse. Uh, in the later part of his life, but um, it was it was his replacement for conversation. Yeah. I mean, in New York City, when he was living there for two years, he met a lot of his friends, you know, in, in person. But when he went back to Providence, you know, he didn't have that many interesting people right in Providence to meet. I mean, so he, you know, his type of mind uh, was one that, that said, I want to discuss things. I don't want to just exchange small talk with people. I want to discuss things of importance, whether it be literature or philosophy or history or, you know, economics or whatever. And if you want to do that, you have to find the people who have those interests. And it all around the nation, he, he corresponded with, you know, with Robert E. Howard and Derleth and Wandry and so many other people. So that was his conversation. Um, and, you know, he would write, you know... 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 page letters. It's, it's inconceivable today how anybody could write that much, but in a sense, they were blogs, if you want to think of them that way. Uh, but really, they were, they were you know, responses to what his correspondent was saying. He was very good at that. He was very sensitive to 
what his correspondent was interested in. And they were all interested in different things. You know, so one was interested in poetry, somebody else interested in, uh, you know, colonial architecture, another one interested just in, in, in you know, pulp writing, whatever. Um, and so he tailored his discussions to suit the, the, the interests of his correspondent. And that, that bestows, you know, that shows a real sensitivity in Lovecraft that, that people don't understand about him, that, that he really, you know, took awareness of, of what his correspondents were interested in. And that's how he, that's how these letters have such an incredible array of interests. Uh, it, it all comes from, from what his correspondents were interested in. Nice. Um, it's a wonderfully impressive and monumental thing to be doing. Um, I, I, I really admire that as a, as a project. Um, as, as we sort of head towards the finish of, the, of this wonderful conversation, thank you so much. One of the things that c has come through both from talking with you, from the, the things you've written, this, this core sense of being fundamentally quite optimistic and forward moving. Even you, you may talk about living in the past, but um, it seems like you've moved forward with a sense of positive force for a very long time um if there are people out there and and obviously if you are a 15 year old 20 year old today you are growing up in a very different world than either of us did but are there any words of advice or thoughts you might give to people who want to end up doing what they want to do because that i think is the, is the thing that comes across so strongly well that's a tough one um i actually call myself a cheerful pessimist <laughs> because <laughs> because quite frankly <laughs> The state of the world is horrible. <laughs> Let's be blunt about it. It's horrible. <laughs> and especially in certain parts of the United States. I am lucky to be living in what I consider a civilized part of the United States, if you know what I mean, politically and in other ways. Um, there are other parts I would... You, you, you could not pay me to live there. Uh, and and there's a real problem in America, this 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 incredible political divide that we're, we're facing. And it's, it's becoming increasingly unbridgeable but and that's just one thing i i have become much more politically aware than i was you know earlier on uh in fact uh, since about 1984 i think i have been reading the new york times every day and i make a point even when i was not living in new york city i still subscribe and to this day i subscribe to the new york times and i read it thoroughly because i it's one of the few reliable venues for for information of all sorts you know around the world and i watch i watch for example i watch bbc news uh because again they they have a real world perspective on the news rather than uh, american tv news which is very parochial and just focused on america but anyway um all i can say is that um you know, to find something that really moves you, uh, it takes a while sometimes. Sometimes people get it early. I got it. I guess I got it early on. But, but you know, again, my interest in horror fiction led me, uh, especially through Lovecraft, to other avenues. And you should allow yourself to pursue that if you can. I just think that it's... it's uh, today, I think there's just too many distractions. You have to... You have to... Um, step back a little bit um and and you know for example i do not participate at all in social media not at all i am not on Facebook. very very I do, wise i do not do twitter i don't even know some of these things that, that are out there because for one thing they're huge time wasters i know several people and i won't we'll mention them who seem to be addicted to social media maybe it is a, a certifiable addiction for all i know um because they feel they have to get their voices out there i don't I am comfortable 
you know, if, if people don't know what I want to, what I'm thinking about certain things, well, that's too bad. Uh, let it go. You know, I'll, I'll write a blog like once every two weeks, maybe, you know, and mostly that's just informational about what I'm doing. I, I, there was a time when I did get very uh, argumentative and confrontational in my blogs and got into a lot of trouble and a lot of disputes, which just all, all that did was just raise my blood pressure. And I said, that's, this is not healthy. Um, and I just, I stepped back from that. Um, but aside from being a time waster, social media, I think is, is, is really, really harmful in a lot of ways in, 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 dissipating your focus on on things and even i um we are faced with a deluge of information and i think that is affecting our minds i can feel already over the last couple of years that i can't focus as well as i i used to because there are too many other things out there you know that i you know and i i'm not a news hound at all i mean i do pay attention i, I go to a couple times a day to, uh, to on the new york times website or cnn website to see what's what, you know what's happening in the world um but you're just bombarded with information and i think at some point you have to step back and and cut off yourself from all this deluge of of really useless information it, it, it goes in one ear out the other and just clogs up your mind and prevents you from focusing on on what it is you really want to do in life. Um, that's all I can say. Um, you know, uh, it, it it takes a while to, to figure out what you want to do, but once you figure that out, do it with all, all you know, as much as you you know with as much tenacity as you can, because that's that's the only way you'll get anything done. That is very very good advice, um, including on the social media. We. Yes, um, in in my work, we we see that exact effect um, a great deal, and just the dissipation of attention spans. And um, there's there's talk of living in an attention economy, but if if you take that idea seriously, then you have to value your own attention and your own focus and treat it as something that you should apply in ways that you wish, not that you just kind of you wouldn't walk down the street scattering dollar bills everywhere. And that's exactly what we do with our attention. And our attention is far more valuable than than money in that respect. It's, a, it's really good advice. Um, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I, I have enormously enjoyed this conversation. I had no idea what to expect. I did not know where this conversation was going to go. And it went in wonderful directions. Well, I, I, I sometimes do get a little excited. I know people... Uh... I don't know why. I just, I, I, you know, I get an adrenaline rush. I'm not just from talking about myself. I, I frankly don't care about myself, and I'm sure other people don't really care about me either. But it's the topics that interest me. Yes. And, and it's, it's, you know, I don't know what it is. It's just, it, it, it again, I, I just feel myself so lucky that I'm able to, to devote myself to, to things that I, that are meaningful to me, and I, I just hope other people can do that uh, somehow. Uh, I think if you imagine the reverse, if you if you meet those people who are not interested or excited about it or anything and don't get their passions up about anything and are just kind of living that very flatline life, let's let's not do that. Let's do the opposite. It's a, it's absolutely the the thing to do. Um, for this podcast, so we will have some links in the show notes where you can find various bits of St. Joshi's writings and blog, and there'll also be a link to Project Tempest on it as always. But this has been a wonderful conversation, and I think we will continue talking a little bit afterwards. But for now, that is the end of the recording. Thank you very much. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. 
this helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.